Well, welcome Summit Church at all of our campus locations across the triangle from Chapel Hill to Cary uh, to North Raleigh and everywhere in between. Um, just out of curiosity, by show of hands, how many at all of our campuses, Civil War buffs do we have in the room? Uh, you're a history nerd and you're not ashamed to admit it right here. All right, you put your hands down. I am a little bit, uh, I guess, probably not as much as some of you, but um, in, uh, in just uh, some of my study of the Civil War, one of the most intriguing figures to me has always been the Union's general-in-chief, uh, a guy by the name of General George McClellan. Uh, on paper, President Lincoln could not have asked for a better uh, general to lead his troops than George McClellan. Uh, he was, uh, they called him the young Napoleon because he had an incredibly strategic mind. He was the youngest member ever to be accepted at the U.S. Military Academy in West Point. He got in when he was 15 years old. Uh, I'm sure he was homeschooled, by the way. Uh, but so he gets in at, at 15. Um, he graduated top in his class. Actually, he was second. Um, the only reason he missed the very top spot is because they said he had subpar sketching skills. Uh, so if you're going to be dinged for something, I would suppose that would be the thing to be dinged for. Um, he was uh, a great mind. He, uh, probably his greatest gift, they say, was he was an excellent recruiter. Um, by the time he took over the Army of the Potomac in 1861, within four months, he had um, increased the size of the Army by 300% at a time when um, the war was not going well for, for, for the Union. Um, uh, he, uh, his, the, the morale of the troops w- was high. They, they started to believe again. Uh, because people thought, you know, that victory is not only possible, um, it's going to be worth any price that we got to pay to get it. So there was nobody in the entire Union North that was surprised when President Lincoln promoted George McClellan to be general-in-chief over all the Union forces. He had the experience, he had the talent, he had it all. And now, now he had a powerhouse army that outnumbered his Confederate enemy nearly two to one. There was just one problem, one problem. The man would not fight. The man wouldn't fight. For weeks, General McClellan readied his position. He organized and strategized. Uh, Robert E. Lee's army lay dangerously exposed just a few miles away. And so President Lincoln repeatedly urged McClellan to put his numerical and tactical advantage to use and crush the rebellion with one swift attack. George McClellan understood the strategy. He understood the odds. He just wouldn't fight. If a military man is unwilling to fight, what good are all the other assets and talents that he has as a military man? So after an excruciating year of inactivity, Lincoln, President Lincoln removed the greatest military mind of his generation, arguably the greatest military mind of United States history, and eventually replaced him with a man who had half of his tactical talent, but a man who would have picked a a fight with a beehive buck naked. And that man was Ulysses S. Grant. The greatest asset of a military man is his ability to fight. Without that, all other assets, all other talents are ultimately useless. I share that because I want to talk about something this weekend that as Christians and as a church, that we have to do well. Something which without it, regardless of how much we succeed at everything else, whatever talent we have, Um, as a church, whatever talents you have as an individual, whatever spiritual assets we have, without this one thing, everything else we do is useless. That one thing is make disciples. No matter how good we are at everything else, Summit Church, if we don't do that as a church and you don't do that as an individual follower of Jesus, you and we fail. We can raise more money than anybody's ever raised in the name of the kingdom of God and build great buildings. We can write great songs. 
We can have the best worship bands. We can have the biggest and best kids ministries and family ministries and college ministries. I can preach great sermons and write great books. But if we don't make disciples, we fail. This fourth week of our start series is on discovering your role in the mission of God. Um, we've been looking over the last few weeks at the six most essential things that you have to master in order to thrive in the Christian life. The first one was knowing the assurance of your salvation. Then the second thing we looked at was how to read and understand the Bible. The third one was knowing how to pray and how to understand who God is and how you relate to him. This fourth week is on discovering the mission of God for your life. If you have a Bible, I want you to open it to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 is the end of the gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in verse 19 in a very familiar text. Um, to, to many of you. As you're turning there, I will explain to you that um, whenever I'm talking to somebody, when I'm discipling somebody, and I talk to them about how they discovered their particular role in the mission of God, because we all have a different role, and it's how God designed us. Um, whenever you want to discover your particular role, it's a combination of three things that you got to put together. One is your vocational skill. Um, God made different ones of you differently. He didn't make you all to be vocational ministers, pastors like me. Um, he gave you skills in uh, dentistry and business and uh, in writing and being a teacher and uh, as a mother, any number of things. Um, it, you know, we have this idea that if you're really spiritual and you really know God, you should go into ministry. And that's just not true. Um, you know, I told you before, I am a professional Christian. That is my job. I'm a professional Christian. I get paid to be good. That's, that's how my job works. You guys are good for nothing, you know, so um, you guys are awesome. Uh, but you're not all called to be pastors. You, you're given a vocation, and God uses that vocation to bless people. The second thing you factor in is your spiritual gifts. God gives, he breathes into you through his spirit, spiritual gifts that are manifestations of his spirit for the good of his church and for the, for the, the propulsion of his mission in the world. Uh, you'll never really know your role in the mission of God until you know what that spiritual gift is. Um, I'm going to talk about that in a few weeks, but not this weekend. But the third thing that you got to understand to grab a hold of the mission of God and your role in it is you got to understand the great commission that is given to every disciple of Jesus to make disciples. So that's what we're going to focus on primarily today, the commission to make disciples, because regardless of your vocation, regardless of your spiritual gifts, the Great Commission is given to you to make disciples, and you're supposed to use your vocation and use your spiritual gifts ultimately to that end. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend a few minutes um, showing you, I'm going to try to show you that discipleship is the core of the Great Commission, try to prove that for you, uh, both for us as a church and for you individually. And then secondly, I would like to show you how it is that you can begin to make disciples if you're not, and if you are, how you can um, maybe do it better, okay? So number one, our first thing here, making disciples is the central element of the mission for every believer. Just want to try to prove that for a few minutes for every church and every believer. Making disciples is the central element of the mission for every believer. It's for your mission. If you're not doing it, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission reads like this, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, you can't tell really easily in English, but the Greek word, there, there's, there's three participles. I put them in yellow there for you. Um, the first one is go, then there's baptizing and teaching. Um, in Greek, when something's a participle, it's always pointing back to one kind of dominant controlling verb. And in this case, the dominant verb is the thing I have in all caps. Make disciples is the dominant verb that all the other participles play into. What does that mean? It means that, go, listen, 
Going, baptizing, and teaching are only good insofar as they contribute to the making of disciples. A guy named Robert Coleman wrote a book in 1962 called The Master Plan of Evangelism. Um, I had our staff read it recently. Um, it's a classic book, and you know the definition of a classic book is a book that everybody's heard about but nobody's read. Um, so we read it together as a staff. And um, it, uh, he says this, I'm going to quote from a lot from it today. Now, by the way, it's real quick. You read it in an hour and a half. I'm going to quote probably a third of it today. So I've already t- knocked out 30 minutes. You just got 60 minutes left. Um, but here's what he said. The Great Commission, listen, is not merely to go to the ends of the earth preaching the gospel. The Great Commission is not to baptize a lot of converts into the name of the triune God, nor is it to teach them the precepts of Christ. It is to make disciples, to build men and women like themselves who were so constrained by the commission of Christ that that they not only follow Jesus themselves, but let others to follow him too. The criteria... The criteria upon which any church should measure its success is not how many new new names are added to the role or how much the budget is increased, but rather how many Christians are actively winning souls and training them to win the multitudes. Most churches do not evaluate their success that way. You want to get a church to evaluate its success and they'll tell you how many people attend on the weekend. They'll tell you how big the offerings are, how big the budget, how many facilities they have. Some will boast the number of baptisms they have, the number of conversions, the people that raised their hand and indicated they were trusting in Christ. But heaven does not celebrate any of those numbers. Not one of them. The only number that heaven celebrates is disciples. Did you know the word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament? A conversion. A conversion only appears three times that's celebrated. Listen to this. The word disciple appears 281 times in the New Testament. So what does the New Testament focus on? It means that it is foolish for us to celebrate and brag about conversions when what heaven celebrates is disciples. You see, what it means to become a Christian is that you trust in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. That's conversion. But a true conversion leads to lifelong discipleship, which means you begin to pursue Jesus for the rest of your life, and you do all that he has commanded you to do. I am not against counting numbers, Summit Church. You know that. And we we talk about them all the time. Each number represents a soul. We rejoice in them. I just want to make sure we're counting the right ones. Because the ones that heaven celebrates are disciples. That priority that God gave to this church is disciple-making, not attendance swelling, not, not budget, not baptisms. It's disciples and disciples are people who make other disciples. That's priority is not something that's just given to us. It's given to each of you for yourself too as a criteria. Every follower of Jesus has been given this responsibility to make disciples. You see, sometimes people read the Great Commission and they think, oh, well, of course, that's what the apostles do. That's what the church leaders do. That's their job. <laughs> that's not true. I'll, I'll explain to you why. If the, the apostles were to teach other people everything that Jesus had commanded, would that not have included the command to make disciples? He didn't say, go teach them everything I have commanded you, except for this last command to make disciples. That's something just for you. No, the command to make disciples is the command to make other disciples. Everyone who follows Jesus is supposed to be a disciple maker. There are a number of other places I could point you to in the Bible. I'll give you just one more where Jesus says it in a different way. John 15, 8, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How is God glorified in you? Is it because you sing the praise songs with your hands in the air and because you give a lot of money and because you know a lot of Bible verses? Well, maybe, but that's not how he's glorified here. 
you're glorified by the, the fact that you bear much fruit and that you have a lot of people that you are bringing into God's kingdom. Not a little fruit, by the way, much fruit. And doing so proves that you are a disciple, which means that if you're not bearing fruit, you have reason to question whether you're actually a disciple at all. Because see, things that are alive grow, potent things multiply. So that's the question you need to ask about yourself. Are you bearing fruit? Are you bearing much fruit? Are you making disciples? Can you point to people in our church today who are here because of your direct influence in bringing them in? Can you point to people in this church that you are growing up into maturity in Jesus Christ? Because if you cannot point to those people, are you bearing much fruit? Are you doing the one thing that Jesus told us was essential for following him? You see, God's plan for how he would grow his church was not giving one guy a great preaching gift. It wasn't creating the best music that everybody would come to listen to. It wasn't having the church start a bunch of new creative programs that would attract families. And Jesus' plan was each individual believer making disciples of those around them. Robert Coleman again, when will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism, nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do the job. Men, read that they're individuals. Individual men and women are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not something. It's not a new book. It's not a new sermon series. It's someone, you. You are God's method for how he makes disciples. I'll tell you why this has been on my mind a lot recently, is we have an extraordinarily motivated church to go out and live on mission. We have numbers of you that have gone to different parts of the city to live strategically. Some of you have developed a burden for your workplace and you're praying for people there or on your campus. Um, we have people in this church that right now are living overseas somewhere and they did that because they thought it's a great way for to live in a place where the gospel is not known. And the question that I've been asking and some of them have been asking me is, I'm not sure exactly what to do now that I'm here. Like I'm doing this as I go live on mission, but I get here and I'm like, do I just what, play your sermons loud in my cubicle? Do I you know, put the summit bumper sticker on the back of my car? It didn't seem to make much sense in Tokyo, but um, maybe that's the way to get the conversation. What do I do? Do you know what to do when you're around a group of people that are not believers, especially if maybe there's not a church nearby? Do you know how to make disciples? Because if I hadn't taught you to do that, then I fail as your leader. I want you to know what to do and I want you to know how to do it. And I don't want all the different things that press in on us from life and church keep us from the one thing Jesus said we have to do. You ever have one of those days where you get up and the moment you get up in the morning, it's like the day slams you in the face. Your kids, if you've got kids or they've got some emergency need, you're taking care of that. And then your boss calls because there's something that's behind it word. It wasn't really your fault, but now it's your, your responsibility. So you get in there trying to take care of that. And then you get a bill from Time Warner Cable where they overcharge you about $600 on your cable bill. And you know that takes seven and a half days on the phone with somebody to work that out. And so the entire, you get to the end of the day and you just collapse and you feel so, so beat and you were so busy, but you can't name a single thing that you did that day. Right? You ever had this happen? Like not one thing on your to-do list. You were so busy, but not one thing that you needed to do that was on your to-do list actually got done. Right? Well, see, I don't want that to happen for you in eternity, where basically you go your entire life doing things that you feel like had to be done, and you stand before God, and the one thing he told you was the thing that was supposed to define you. You don't have anything to show for it because the had-to-do in life kept you from the must-do, the important thing to do. 
So I want you to know how to make disciples. In fact, let me give you a pretty radical thought here. God gives you your vocation, at least in part, as a platform and as a network of relationships through which you can make disciples. That's why God gives you your vocation. Now, in saying that, please hear me as you write that down. I am not saying that your work is not a good end in and of itself, because it is. If you're a dentist, you are blessing people by helping them have healthy teeth. And if you're an architect, you're building buildings to the glory of God and you're benefiting others. Whatever your work is, is a good end in and of itself. You're blessing others. And of course, when I talk about using your vocation as a platform um, to which you make disciples, I'm not talking about you doing anything inappropriate. Like if you're a public school teacher preaching to your kids all day, or if you're a doctor sitting by a bedside and, you know, whispering, turn or burn, you know, or, or if you're a dentist with, got your hands in people's mouth and you're like, you know, I see some cavities in your teeth, but the real cavities are in your soul caused by sin. Um, I'm not, not suggesting you do that, okay? What I am saying is that your profession naturally puts you into contact with people in your profession, other people that are more likely to listen to you than to me. That's why I showed you in the book of Acts. Remember when we went through the book of Acts? This came up like 748 times. Everywhere in the book of Acts, we see the gospel spreading faster through the hands of ordinary people than it does through the apostles. In the book of Acts, I showed you the apostles never, or maybe say rarely, in the book of Acts, the apostles rarely get anywhere with the gospel first. It's normal Christians who are carried on the wings of business that are the first people to take the gospel into new places. When we think about the worldwide spread of the gospel and the spread of the gospel into new places in the United States, it's not going to be me or a group of people that are full-time missionaries that are going to get that first. It's going to be you. That's why I told you that those of you who do not feel called to be full-time Christian workers, those of you who are not called to be professional Christians, you play a more strategic role in the worldwide spread of the gospel than those of us who are in vocational ministry. You are, according to the book of Acts, you are the tip of the spear. You are God's plan A, which is backwards to how most of us think about it, isn't it? You think I'm God's plan A, and you come in here and you give some money and support me as I lead the charge. It's actually the opposite way. That's why I sometimes have told you over the years, according to Ephesians 4.11, Ephesians 4.11, God gives pastors for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Who does the work of the ministry? The saints, my role as an equipper. That means when I became a pastor, this is what I tell you, I left the ministry. And that was frustrating for me. I left, I got on the back line, here, frustrating. I go to work every day with a, a bunch of um, pastors. Most of the pastors are Christians. <laughs> 85% of them, all right? But I don't live among unbelieving people in my workplace anymore. I, it wasn't like that in college. I lived around unbelieving people all the time. So I'm just not on the front line of ministry anymore like I used to be, but you are. I've explained to you that there, remember, there are 40 miracles in the book of Acts, 40, 39 of them happen outside of the church. That means I've got access to 140th of the power of God because I work inside the church. And that's probably not a great interpretation technique, but you get the point. You've got access to 39 40ths of what God wants to do. You're the tip of the spear. So here's my question for you. Have you ever seriously considered that maybe God gave you your skill, medicine, athletics, teaching, business. Maybe he gave you that not just as a tool for making money. Maybe he gave it to you primarily as a platform for spreading the gospel. Have you ever thought about that? And are you doing that? All right, so let me shift here. Give you six things that need to be true of you if you're going to become a disciple maker. 
It's your responsibility. I mean, six things got to be true of you. How to become a disciple maker. Number one, this one might be the most important. You got to own the assignment. You just got to own it. This is probably the biggest obstacle is that you always feel like it's what God has told somebody else to do and you're not really good at it. And you got a bunch of excuses why you're not doing it. You, you, in fact, <laughs> write this down. My job is making disciples. It's your job, not your neighbor's. In fact, all right, everybody look at me right now at all campuses. Everybody turn to your neighbor right now. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's not your job, it's my job. Say it, say it, right, everybody right now. It's not your job, it's my job. This is your job. Jesus gave it to you, and I know that for many of you, that makes you feel overwhelmed. But that's the good news. If you accept the assignments and you look to God, he promises that he'll actually do it through you. One of my favorite promises in scriptures where Jesus said, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. He didn't say become a fisher of men and then come to me. He said, you just follow me and I'll do the making, which means the moment I say, Jesus, I want to do this. I don't know how to do it. You make me a fisher of men. And then all of a sudden he puts me where he put Peter when he had Peter throw his nets in the other side. Remember he kept fish all night, caught nothing and pulled up nothing but water. And now Jesus says, now do this. And he puts it in and he pulls up enough that it makes his boat begin to sink. That's Jesus's promise for you. And if you'll come to a point where you own the assignment and say, Jesus, this is what you said. Now show me how to do it. He'll show you. I'd say there's a lot of you in here that have never brought somebody to faith in Jesus Christ. Never. And to be honest with you, that doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me because I think this could be a brand new day for you where you say, Jesus, these promises are true. And I want to see you do this through me. The only ones that bother me are those of you who it doesn't bother you that you've never brought somebody to Christ. That's what bothers me. If you're here today and never brought somebody to Christ, this is an invitation for you to say, Jesus, this is your promise. This is what you said. You never command what you do not also supply. Show me how to do it. And don't hide, by the way. If you've never brought somebody to Christ, do not hide behind that, um, oh, I'm just being faithful and God brings the No. Um, Spurgeon said it best. He said, he said, you know, I can understand a fisherman maybe going through a season where he doesn't catch fish, but no fisherman's ever going to be okay with that. And that fisherman He says, if I'm that fisherman, I'm looking up to God and I'm saying, God, what's wrong with me? You promised this. Why isn't it coming true in my life? That's what you should do if you aren't bringing people to Christ. Number two, you got to understand the method. Understand the method, which is life on life. Jesus' method for discipling was not preaching a class, was not taking them through a class, was not getting them to read a book. It was life on life. Robert Coleman made this observation about Jesus in this book I've been quoting from. Listen, whether Jesus was addressing the multitudes that pressed upon him, arguing with the Pharisees who sought to ensnare him, or speaking to some lonely beggar along the road, the disciples were always close at hand to observe and to listen. Through this manner of personal demonstration, every aspect of Jesus' personal discipline of life was bequeathed to his disciples. Because see, look, one sermon is, one living sermon is worth a hundred explanations. I'll tell you where I, where I learned this from, my dad. My dad um, really came to Christ when uh, I was two years old. We moved to a city in North Carolina, moved um, from, uh, it was our first time in North Carolina. And uh, they were, my mom and dad were very cultural Christians. Uh, just you know, had some church in the background, but weren't serious about it. Um, they heard about this exciting new church that was growing, and so they went there, and sure enough, the guy could really preach, and, and uh, God used his preaching to grip my mom and dad's heart. But my dad says it was not a single one of his sermons that really transformed my life. They caught my attention. So what transformed my life is he began to invite me to be a part of his life. 
He used to take me with him when I would go play, when he would go places, whether to preach or to share Christ with somebody. So probably the biggest impact was he invited me and three other guys to get, to get together with him an hour before the service started on Sunday just to pray together. And he says, I can tell you 40 years later, I do not remember a single sermon he ever preached. What I remember was hearing him pray and how impacting the sermons were that he preached through prayer. Because one living sermon was worth 100 explanations on prayer. It was hearing him talk to other people about Jesus. It was hearing him talk to Jesus about other people. It was his life that transformed me, not his sermons. Our college ministry, who is exceptionally good at this, they say it this way, 75% of discipleship is informal. It's informal. See, what that means for many of you is that you just need to open up your life to start doing it with other people. You need to invite others into the ministries you are doing. And one of my rules for my life is I never do anything alone. I'll give you a one way you could apply this today or, or, or next weekend. Um, at our church, we do a thing called the boiler room. Don't ask me to explain the name. You'll have to figure that out on your own. That's on the website. Um, but what it is, is every service we have here, um, every service we have a group of people in a room praying through the service. Um, how awesome would it be for you to join up with that once a month and to take somebody with, who, with you who is a younger Christian so that you can disciple them and how to pray during that time that you spend in prayer during the service? That's how somebody discipled my dad, and my dad became a man of God who brought me up in the faith. That's how you'll disciple somebody else is just opening up your life with people. Now, there is, of course, a cost to living this way. Coleman says such close and constant association, of course, meant virtually that Jesus had no time to call his own. Uh, you're introverts, you're extroverts, you're different personalities. And I know that for some of you, I mean, there, if there's one thing I know about Americans is we love our free time. So we're cruising home and opening that garage door and we go in and press that little button and shut the door and now we're sealed off from the world and we got a nice little back deck with privacy trees and a little fire pit. We don't talk to anybody, right? You ever, live, you ever have a neighbor like this? I had a neighbor at the house I previously lived at that I am not sure I ever saw that man walk. I don't even know if he has legs. As far as I know, he might just have a torso because I only saw him in his car. You know, he'd go to his car and he'd kind of give me a nod, open the garage door, go in, and he, there might have been a whole other world in there. I have no idea. But I, I never saw, you have a neighbor like that? How many of you are a neighbor like that, all right? All right. <laughs> what it means is that you begin to invite people over into your life. It means you have people over for dinner. I feel like one of the things we don't talk about near enough is the evangelistic power of hospitality. By the way, hospitality in the New Testament is always evangelistic. When I have a, another Christian over for dinner, that's fellowship. Hospitality is given to the people of Israel as a way of showing um, kindness to the stranger, people outside the covenant, which means that part of your life ought to be just bringing families in, eating with people and just opening your life to them. That would just make a huge difference. Some of the best evangelism encounters our family has had have been around that as my wife invites other neighbors in, and we just, it's, it's, sometimes they're awesome conversations, sometimes they're awkward conversations. I think I told you about this one earlier. We had a discussion as to whether or not I'd ever share this story. So if I have, just endure it. Um, a, a few years ago, my, my, my family invited over an Islamic family who um, came to eat dinner with us. And so he, me and the guy, um, the Muslim dad, had been out to lunch several times. And so we're all around the table, and um, I just thought, I'm like, you know, um, I said, hey, you know, when you and I go out to lunch, you do your thing over your food, and I pray, and, and, uh, and then we eat. I was like, so is it okay we're all here around the table? Is it okay if I just pray for everybody? <laughs> he thought for a minute. He said, well, he says, uh, I, I got a better idea. He said, that wouldn't bother me. He said, but I got a better idea. Why don't we have my daughter, who she was 11, pray for our family, and then your daughter, my oldest daughter was seven, she can pray for your family. That would have been awesome if I'd have had some prep time. 
and which I did not. And I said, mm, but he, I'm going to let him call my bluff. I'm like, oh, sure, that sounds like a great idea. Um, so his daughter, we all bow our heads. His daughter starts to pray, 11-year-old, in Arabic for a minute. And I know that doesn't sound like a long time, but when it's all in Arabic and you got four kids under the age of seven, that's a long time. So we're all like, you know, kind of looking around and she keeps going and I don't know what she's saying. She finally gets something that sounds like amen. And then there's like 10 to 15 awkward seconds of silence. And my head's bowed and I'm like, you know, I didn't have any prep time. I'm a seven-year-old. I need some prep time. That's fair. Um, and so I, you know, I look up at her because I'm like, does she know what to do? And my oldest daughter is there with her head bowed. And I look over at her. She doesn't look at me. She lifts her head straight up like this, opens up her hands. And this is exactly what she said. She said, dear Jesus, thank you for coming to earth to die on a cross for our sins so that we could be saved and go to heaven. And thank you for leaving the Holy Bible so that we could all know about it because you're the only way we can be saved. Amen. And I was like, <laughs> you know, it's like, I've never been prouder or more mortified as a dad at the same time. So it doesn't always work out pretty for us, but it's awesome. It's just, it's opening your life and letting people see how you talk to your kids and how you treat your spouse and how you pray for your meals, right? That is what God wants you to begin to do, open your life. Hey, here's a gut check I have for you. Could you pull out your cell phone right now? right now and go through your contact list and find three unbelieving people who are not in church that you could text right after the service and ask them to go have coffee. If you could not do that, is there any way possible that you are actually doing the one thing Jesus told us to do to make disciples? Jesus' method for reaching others was not me preaching to the masses or a program. It was men and women like you sharing their lives. Number three, be ready with a plan. Be ready with a plan. You got to know where you're going. That's one of the reasons we did this start series. This is not just a six-week sermon series. This is uh, us identifying and writing Bible studies on the six most essential things. I want you to take these and begin to use them. You invite people into it, and, and you walk with them through it at a coffee shop uh, throughout the week. Um, one of the easiest ways to begin to disciple somebody is just invite them to read the Bible with you. That's why we do this one-year reading plan. It's just an easy way to say, hey, let's read the same passages together. Let's just read the New Testament portion of the reading plan, and let's get together once a week and talk about it. Um, uh, it's why we have, if you go on our website, we got all kinds of resources we provide at the summit, like Right Now Media. Uh, right Now Media is a portal that accesses for free for you some of the best Bible teaching in a small group setting in the world. And you have access to that because you're a part of our church. It's like a ready-made Bible study for your workplace or your dorm or something to do in your home. Uh, we have things like men's fraternity, uh, our women's ministry. Of course, there are just numbers of Christian books that you can take somebody through and just read it together and talk about it. Um, if you don't know which one of those best fits your situation, you meet with a member of our small groups team, any member, their job is to be able to help you get connected to one of those. And if they can't help you get connected, you fire them on the spot. All right, I give you that authority right now. They're like, I don't know what to do. And then boom, they're fired because that's their job. Their job is to help you know how to make these things begin to happen. So you gotta be ready with a plan. Number four, make the invitation. Just make the invitation. You gotta invite somebody into the process. At some point, you got to go beyond just the, hey, we know each other, to let me talk to you about this. Now, you say, well, how do I do that? How do I do that? Well, first, you got to learn to share your story about how you came to Christ in a, like, like a very compelling way. And then you ask somebody, hey, would you like to learn more about receiving Jesus into your life? Would you like to read the Bible with me? Maybe you could invite them to church with you. I mean, that's a huge one, right? Because the way we structure our services, we do it intentionally 
um, as a way of making it, because I don't use a bunch of theologically heady words usually, and I'm trying to make, I'm trying to raise questions. And I will say in the middle of a sermon, you've heard me say this, I will say, you know, the person that brought you today is smarter than I am, and they will go out with you to lunch or dinner after this, and they will answer all your questions, and they'll even pay for your meal. That's why you're here. I'm doing that because I know that you're bringing people, and my job is to raise the question, and your job is to life on life, share the answers. So invite them to our church. Uh, invite them to your small group. <laughs> Here's this thing. You never know what God is doing until you make the invitation. People will say to me sometimes, they're like, man, pastor, you have all these like crazy stories that happen on airplanes. That never happens to me. Here's why you think I have crazy stories on airplanes and you think that they never happen to you. For every one story I tell you about that has an awesome, you know, thing that's worth sharing, there's like five stories where I crash and burn. Not like actually in the airplane, but like the conversation crashes and burns. I had one this week. Sitting next to a guy on an airplane. I turned to him and started a conversation. Within five seconds, he's got on his noise-canceling headphones. And I'm like, nope, that's not awkward at all. I'll go back to my book. Uh, you know, so it, it doesn't end up well. And so, yeah, there are a lot of times that this guy, but I'm telling you, one out of five, one out of ten, all of a sudden I'll be like, that person's, God's been working on that person. The Holy Spirit's been putting, see, I know the Holy Spirit's the most active evangelist in the world, and he's got putting questions in people all around him. I don't know who he's doing that to. It's the only way that I can figure it out is, is I just run my magnet over the sand. <laughs> Everywhere I go, it's like I'm just saying, like this. And, and usually it's just sand, like dead, dead. And then you know, all of a sudden there's one, I'm like, spiritual interest. And I'm like, God sent me to you. And I'd never know that unless I actually just stepped out and made an invitation. See, you have got to engage and make the invitation. And you got to pray a lot about it before you do it every day. You know, it's significant to me that before Jesus chose his 12 disciples, he spent the whole night in prayer. You should pray every day about God putting these kinds of relationships in your life. Number five, stop making excuses. Stop it. I've heard them all. They're all lame. Oh, I don't know what to say. I just gave you a bunch of stuff. Um, I, I, I witness with my, this is my, I witness with my life. I'm like, how do you do that? I witness, the, the, the gospel is not a presentation of what an awesome person you are. The gospel is the news that you were so messed up, Jesus had to die for your sorry self. So you demonstrating how kind and awesome you are isn't helping anybody find Jesus. It might give them a false picture of who you are, but it's certainly not helping them finding salvation. The gospel is the news that Jesus did for you what you couldn't do for yourself, and that requires words. And so quit hiding behind that statement that always gets attributed to Francis of Assisi. He probably didn't say it. But Francis, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. I don't even know what that means. I've told you before, the line I use with that is, that's like telling me, um, uh, give me your phone number. If necessary, use digits. <laughs> it is digits. Uh, talking to other people about Jesus makes me feel weird. That's one that people say or they think. <laughs> I'm always like, of course it does. I've heard evangelism defined as two people talking to each other, both feeling incredibly awkward. But here's the thing, the message I believe is important enough to be worth a little awkwardness. You know, like you guys, I'm watching this whole thing in Texas with the Ebola and you're watching this litany of errors that's made and you know when you get down to it that what you got are you got nurses and doctors, well-meaning people that it's awkward to look at somebody and be like, hey, you got a slightly elevated temperature, but we're going to have to put you in quarantine for 21 days. And I know that there's a real kind of, you know, like, I don't want to have to have that conversation and I don't want to go to that rate. And so it's easier just to avoid it. But you and I are watching that for North Carolina and we're saying, that's your job. 
Your job is to make people feel awkward if that's what keeps our country from a disease outbreak. Do your job. Now I look at that and I say, as a Christian, I got a job even more important than that. That's my job. And yes, if I create a couple of awkward situations and if I, every once in a while I get accused of coming off too strong, that's okay because I think the message is worth it. Now, I'm not talking about you being a pushy, ridiculous person. That just hurts the thing. But I'm just saying that if you understand the stakes, you got a job that is so important. And yeah, it's going to make you feel weird sometimes. I don't have time. That's another one people give. I got empathy for this one because I'm busy like you are. Here's one of my favorite definitions of evangelism. Evangelism is doing normal life with gospel intentionality. It's doing normal life with gospel intentionality. Normal life, not adding something to life, just doing life with gospel intentionality. Think about this. You eat 21 meals a week, right? 21 meals a week are part of your life. Why not eat some of them with people you want to disciple? Some of you eat twice that many. You got like twice the discipleship opportunities right there. Get this, this, is, this will change your life. Every single instance of Jesus making disciples in the gospel of Luke, everyone, involves him at, going to, or coming from a meal. That's a savior I can follow. I love Jesus. My fear is that you're gonna be so busy with just the small things in life, you don't do the one thing he's told you to do. Normal life with gospel intentionality. I'm not capable, that's one I hear a lot. I'm not capable. Y'all, after giving the Great Commission, do you see that last line Jesus used? I'll go with you to the end of the age. You're never going to be anywhere talking about me that I'm not right there beside you. Um, you ever watch C-SPAN and you'll, when, they're in, when Congress is in session and a guy is like doing the, there's, you know, you got Robert's rules, you got to obey. And there's always some dude over here on the side that is telling the guy that's in charge of the meeting what the rules are. You ever, anybody else watch C-SPAN? Am I the only legitimate nerd in here? All right, so watch it. You've got to be, and he's saying, uh, that question's out of order. Um, you got to do this, and you've got to recognize this. He's got three minutes. Um, I think of that, and I think of that's being Jesus in my life as I'm out sharing Christ. He's kind of standing there saying, no, 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 don't say that. Say this over here. You see, his problem is not that, if I told you when you left that Jesus would go with you, and he would whisper to you what to say, you'd feel pretty confident. Jesus said, Luke eleven twenty one, in the Holy Spirit, that is exactly what he will do. He will go inside of you, and he will give you the words to say at the moment that you need them. So don't tell me you don't have what it takes because you have the spirit of God inside of you. So stop making excuses. And number six, you got to start somewhere. Guys, don't be McClellan. Don't have all the gifts and just never pick the fight. Try one of these ideas that I've given to you. Invite somebody to church, to small group, to read the Bible. Do it this week. There's a girl at our Chapel Hill campus that when we started this thing, she was like, man, I've never done anything like this and this freaks me out. But her small group leader said, hey, why don't you share your story with two people and invite them into this? She said, I had a conversation with two people. She said, both of them were intrigued enough. Now I'm meeting with two different girls throughout the week to go through these six things. You'll never know until you try. Invite somebody over to dinner this week. Take a coworker out to lunch. You're like, well, I don't know any unbelievers. Do what I do. Go eat at the same restaurants every time you go out. Go with me to a restaurant sometime. If it's one-on-ones I choose, everybody in there will know who I am, and they will all know that I tip big. And if you ever give out a Summit Inviter card with less than a 15% tip, I will find you, okay? <laughs> Guys, we've got to get really serious about this. I hope in all the things I say, I hope you can hear the seriousness. Robert Coleman, a barren Christian is a contradiction. A tree is known by its fruit. Fruitlessness was the thing that was lacking in the lives of the Sadducees and Pharisees, which made them so wretched in his sight. They knew a lot about theology, but they never reproduced. In fact, Jesus said, you go all the way around the world to make a convert, and you can't even make one here. I always think of, and I'm a seminary student twice, I always think of seminary students who have to go on a mission trip to win somebody to Christ when they're not doing it here. 
And I'm like, you know, there's no, like when you get on an airplane, it's not like God sprinkles you with magic, you know, fairy evangelistic effectiveness dust. There's no transformation by aviation. If you're not doing it here, you're not going to do it there. You want to know why our church has been so successful at the churches we planted? We've yet to have one fail internationally or nationally. Here's why. We will not label somebody a church planner until they are effectively multiplying their small group here. Because why would we send somebody to do there what they can't do here? And if they can do it here, they can do it anywhere. Are you effective at making disciples? You've got to get serious about this because a barren Christian is a contradiction. And if I could just go off a pet peeve real quick. I'm so tired of Christians being like, oh, pastor, I just want to go deeper. I just want to go deeper. I'm always like, deeper in what? Because invariably when somebody says that to me, um, they're not making disciples. Now, I guess there's an exception or two out there, but usually when somebody says that to me, they're not making disciples. So I'm like, you don't want to go deeper. You want to go wider. You want to go wider in your knowledge, which is fine, but first you should probably go deeper in your obedience. Because deeper is a term of intimacy with God and it's a term of obedience. Why am I going to teach you a bunch of other stuff when you're not obeying the things you already know? So you want to go deeper, you go deeper in making disciples and don't come and talk to me about that until you've got people that you're bringing up in the faith of Jesus Christ. I love what Charles Spurgeon said to that. He's like, you know, I would rather bring one sinner to Jesus Christ than unpack all the divine mysteries in the Bible because salvation and the Great Commission is the thing that Jesus told me to, to, to live for. Are you winning people to Christ? Am I teaching you to do that? That's how I'm going to be evaluated as a leader. I believe that probably 40 years from now, when I look back, when I look back on my ministry 40 years from now from heaven or, you know, 100 years from now in heaven, I'm going to realize the biggest impact I made was probably not going to be in the sermons I preached, but in the people that I discipled and influenced. Um, there's a, a group. I, when I first came pastor here, I started a small college guys Bible study. We met on Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Why would you meet at Friday mornings on 6 a.m.? I have no idea. I just thought it sounded cool and that we could weed out all the people who weren't serious, and it worked. One of the guys called it his Thursday night Bible study because he said it's closer to that than it is to me than when I get up on Friday. Seven guys, listen to this. Seven guys. Five of them are on our staff right now. Five of them. Or at least have been on our staff and are transitioning to go plant churches. Why? Because that's the way that the Great Commission goes forward. Do you have people that you're bringing into faith. Let me give one caveat. I was scared about this one all week. There are people here, you're not Christians, and you're like, oh, now all week, these Christians are going to be bothering me after this sermon. Sadly, sadly, most of you have nothing to worry about. Most Christians will live and work beside you, and they will never say a word, and that's a tragedy. Because according to what they believe, you have a disease, a fatal disease, that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. But they believe that your disease that is killing you, they believe it's none of their business. And what they're doing is 10% respect for you and 90% cowardice. And so my, if you're not a believer, I would encourage you to go to them this week and say, hey, I appreciate the 10% respect that you gave to me and not trying to force your beliefs on me, but I also want to confront you on the 90% cowardice that if you actually believe what you believe, that Jesus Christ is my only hope of salvation, and you just never tell me about it, I'm insulted by that. You should be insulted by that. And then I want you to say to them, just tell me, explain to me. We're not going to force it down your throat. We're not going to you know, try to wrestle you. We're going to respect you. But yeah, you come in here. I'm trying to motivate other people to go share Jesus because I really believe the gospel is true. And if I didn't, if I do believe it's true, we have to do that. So yes, we want you to know Jesus like we do. We're going to respect you, but we're all about this message. 
Why don't you bow your heads if we would at all of our campuses? Will the Holy Spirit bring to mind three people, three people in your life who need to hear the gospel, who need to be brought in? And would you spend some time with him and just pray for them in these moments?